You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. I'm Dudley Dudley. I live in Durham, New Hampshire. And many years ago, I lived in Greenland, New Hampshire, which is just outside of Portsmouth and Exeter. While I was living there with my husband and children, we joined a group called Seacoast Council on Religion and Race. It was in the early 60s. And among the other people who were members of that group, there was a couple party in Betty Hill. I got to know them rather well and invited them to dinner one night. And after dinner, we were sitting in the living room just talking generalities, and all of a sudden, out of absolutely nowhere, Barney started to tell this story of something that had happened to them, oh, maybe six months or eight months earlier. It was the story of their abduction by aliens. It was jaw-dropping. I mean, it, it, it was nothing that I had any reason to believe apart from their saying it, but I mean, there'd been no clues whatsoever. Nobody had whispered about, you know, Barney and Betty had this adventure. They just started to talk, and it was compelling they talked about driving in their car and coming down the highway and seeing lights flashing. Somehow the lights urged them to pull over. From there, in their telling of the story, it developed into their being taken out of the car and into, I guess, the spaceship and physically examined. Betty... (laughs) sort of laughed about it, saying that she figured later that they went back up into the heavens or wherever from whence they had come and were reporting to their boss of the creatures on Earth that the male of the species is black, the female is white, and the offspring is this little (laughs) sausage-shaped brown, what, what we know as a dog. In their separate hypnosis sessions, Betty and Barney Hill told remarkably similar stories about being abducted and brought aboard an alien spacecraft. Last episode, we looked at what we now know about memory and hypnosis. Simply put, the stories they told while under hypnosis can't be regarded as an accurate recall of a real event. But if the abduction didn't happen, how were their stories so similar? I'm Toby Ball. This is Strange Arrivals. Episode 6, Junior. 
At the time of their hypnosis sessions in 1964, Dr. Benjamin Simon believed that the source material was Betty's dreams. Ten nights after this happened, I had a series of dreams for five nights. Each dream was different, which later I found out was a recall of what had happened. In the dreams, you were depicting what you just described to me. At that point, what do you do? Where, when, is, it, is it starting? Is Barney troubled by all of this? Is Barney... No. Has his life pattern changed? Has his mood changed at all? Or uh, actually... Any physical... The first thing I did was each month during the next day, I wrote down what I could remember of my dream. The following day, which would be the 20th. And every time I had... No, I I'm, I'm sorry, 10, 10 days, right. Sure. After. So we're talking the 29th, 30th, roughly. Yeah. And I wrote... I made a record of these 38 dreams. years to the day. Okay, and sure. then I took and put them away. Mm-hmm. And then later, several months later, I, was, I talked with my supervisor about the meaning of dreams. And? Then she said, well, maybe it happened. That was Betty Hill talking with folklorist John Horrigan in 1999. During their hypnosis sessions, Betty told Dr. Simon about the nightmares that she had had over the course of five nights after the UFO encounter. Dr. Simon knew Barney had suffered from anxiety prior to the encounter, but Betty didn't seem to have a similar prior psychological issue. Working on the assumption that the abduction had not literally occurred, he wondered if maybe these dreams had some connection to the distress she was showing under hypnosis. As we heard last week, he also began to wonder if she had been telling Barney the details of these dreams. Could that be why his story matched hers? He asked her if she had talked to anyone about her dreams. This is Dr. Simon on the Larry Glick radio show in 1975. She says, oh yes, uh, uh, my supervisor, my sister, when we got to work, we'd, uh, we'd come home uh, and have tea together, and I told her my dreams, and this is a very telling one. And she said that it was my supervisor who said, Betty, how do you know these are dreams? How do you know it isn't true? And this was planting the seed now that this had to be true. Not only had she told someone about her dreams, that person had suggested the possibility that they were more than dreams that maybe they were memories. She also told him that the dreams had been so remarkable that she'd written them down. Dr. Simon recognized this as a great opportunity. So I directed her to bring in her dreams, that she would find them and bring them in the next session she brought them. And uh, they were fully typed out by herself at the time they occurred. That's very important, back in 61. In November 1961, less than two months after their encounter with the UFO, Betty Hill wrote an account of her dreams in a document titled Dreams or Recall. She began this document by writing that she was going to describe her dreams in chronological order of the story, which was not the order she had dreamt them in. With a few minor discrepancies, she related the same story that she had told under hypnosis the turn off the main highway, the figures in the road, the experience on the spacecraft, even Barney's dentures 
and the discussion about squash. It is, in all important ways, indistinguishable from the story she told under hypnosis. And uh, on a careful inspection of that with her story, they were exactly alike with one difference, that in the dream, she went up both a ramp and steps. She and Barty were both taking up ramp and steps. That's all. Otherwise, they were exactly alike. And uh, still, she would not accept fully that they were the same. There was another discrepancy that we will look at in a few minutes. But Dr. Simon was struck not only by the nearly identical stories, but also by the way that her hypnotically recovered story seemed to reflect a kind of dream logic. By the way, when I say dreams, I was not only referring to the fact she had dreams, that she had written them down, but the whole structure of the story was that of a dream. There are many contradictions inconsistent with they're perfectly all right in dreams. In fact, they're part of the nature of dreams. And so this thing was clearly uh, filled out from the the, uh, concept of the dream by a lot of inner material. Dreams for Recall was, for Dr. Simon, the key to the whole abduction narrative. Well, that gave me an answer at that point, that uh, this fantastic story uh, was uh, for dreams. And therefore, we could fit that uh, very well with reality. The dreams of that sort are entirely admissible. So I was satisfied I didn't have to look any further for an explanation. I wouldn't have to accept under our present uh, conditions the existence of this just amount of space, however they describe whatever they were. There is no question that her dreams and her hypnosis testimony are the same story told with very minor variations. This can be explained in two different ways. The first is the explanation that Dr. Simon preferred. Betty had these intense dreams and told Barney and others about them. When they eventually were hypnotized, Betty related her dreams and Barney told what he imagined his experience would have been based on what he'd heard about her dreams. Is it plausible that Betty's string of dreams were caused by the UFO sighting on the night of September 19th? I definitely wouldn't say that there's a reason to believe that something that you dreamed bears a straightforward relationship to something that happened in real life. They're usually related to something that's happening in your real life, but they're often sort of mixing together different elements. So it might take a feeling that you've had, maybe you haven't recognized and kind of dramatize it in a story. I'm Alice Robb, and I'm the author of the book, Why We Dream. The dreams that people tend to talk about and tell their friends about are the more dramatic ones. And of course those do happen. The reason that we have those crazy dreams is that when we're dreaming, our brain is in this different state where the emotion centers of our brain are very activated, but the rational centers that usually would keep those emotions in check are more dormant. So it is consistent with our understanding of how dreams work that Betty would have nightmares that made a story out of the anxiety she felt during their UFO encounter in the White Mountains. The other possibility is that Betty's dreams were her mind's way of bringing to the surface events that had happened the night of the encounter. 
Memories that the alien abductors had somehow caused her and Barney to forget. If this was the case, the hypnosis sessions were uncovering actual memories of their abduction. Even if the hypnotically recalled stories weren't exactly what happened in every detail, the basic fact that they were brought aboard a spacecraft was confirmed. That's the argument if you believe the abduction story is real. I asked Alice Robb if there was any research about whether dreams could conjure up memories that people had lost through amnesia. The only piece of research I can think of that involves dreams of people with amnesia was this study about 20 years ago by Robert Stickgold, who was studying dreams and memory consolidation. This is one of the first real scientific studies of dreams. He had people come into his lab and play Tetris for hours and then had them report their dreams and found that they would have dreams of Tetris or dreams of tiles or dreams that were sort of influenced by the game. So he included some regular healthy undergraduates and he also included some patients with amnesia. These were people with no short-term memory. They were unable to remember things that had happened even just hours before. It was a small sample. It was only, I think, six or seven people. So I wouldn't want to read too, too much into this, but they did have elements of the game in their dreams, even if they couldn't consciously remember like the rules, they would have to relearn how to play Tetris every time. As Alice said, you can only put so much stock in a study of this size, but there is an indication that someone might be able to recall things in a dream that were lost due to amnesia. But again, as with any dream, it's not going to be a replay of actual events. Like hypnosis, it's a more complicated process. And it's not that surprising that Betty would think that her dreams were a recall of an actual event and that those dreams would eventually function essentially as memories. There's plenty of history of people giving great significance to their dreams. I think dreams absolutely can affect how we remember things. I mean, dreams can be such powerful and emotional and lifelike experiences in ways that science can't fully explain. It makes sense to wonder sort of where they came from. And there are lots of examples of people undergoing religious conversions or changing their beliefs after powerful dreams. To me, it seems likely that Dr. Simon's instinct was correct. Betty had dreams that were a reaction to her experience in the White Mountains. Then, under hypnosis, she recalled those dreams as if they had actually happened. This fits with what we know about dreams. On the other hand, there doesn't seem to be any scientific evidence that dreams can recall lost memories in the vivid detail that Betty's described. But there are some discrepancies in the details of Betty's dreams, Betty's and Barney's hypnosis testimony, and their later memories. These are most noticeable in the way the descriptions of the aliens changed over time. After the break, Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. 
The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Take a second and bring up a mental image of an alien. Most people will probably think of something like this. Small body, big head with an enlarged cranium as if to accommodate a huge brain, oversized oval or cat-like eyes, diminished nose and mouth, no ears to speak of. This description is what people in the UFO community call a gray. Popular culture has settled on grays as what aliens look like. Think close encounters of the third kind. This conception originates, at least in part, with the Hill's description of the aliens they encountered. But they didn't initially describe the beings they encountered in this way. Their description changed as time went on. This is from Betty and Barney's 1966 appearance on The Alan Douglas Show. What was the dream like, Betty? You care to tell me? In Dreams or Recall, this is how she describes the aliens. During this time, I became conscious of several things. First, only one man speaks in English with a foreign accent, but very understandable. The others say nothing. I note their physical appearance. Most of the men are my height, although I cannot remember the height of the heels on my shoes. None are as tall as Barney, so I would judge them to be five feet to five feet four inches. Their chests are larger than ours. Their noses were larger, longer than the average size, though I have seen people with noses like theirs, like Jimmy Durante's. Their complexions were of a gray tone, like a gray paint with black base. Their lips were of a bluish tint. Hair and eyes were very dark, possibly black. And the men were all dressed alike, presumably in uniform of a light navy blue color with a gray shade to it. They wore trousers and short jackets that gave the appearance of zippered sport jackets. 
but I am not aware of zippers or buttons for closing. Shoes were a low slip-on style, resembling a boot. I cannot remember any jewelry or insignia. They were all wearing a military cap, similar to Air Force, but not so broad on top. They were very human in appearance, not frightening. But this was not how she would describe them in her hypnosis sessions later. In response to a written question, apparently trying to address this discrepancy, she wrote the following reply. Her description is in keeping with the standards of the mid-1960s, but is a little jarring to hear today. In my dreams, I felt I made the humanoids more like us than they really were. Under hypnosis, I described them as mongoloid, a certain type of retardation, with broad, flat faces, large, slanting eyes, small, flattened nose. Their bodies seemed out of proportion with their larger chest areas. Barney, too, initially described the beings as looking close to human. But as time passed, this also changed. His first glimpse of the aliens came during the encounter at Indian Head, when he sees the occupants of the craft looking out at him through the bank of windows. You saw him through this window? You said there were no roll-up windows. It was a row of windows, just a huge row of windows. Barney describes the saucer occupants in a way that to him conjures menace. Would you see him clearly? Yes, I thought. What's his face like? What does it make you think of? It's round. I think of a red-haired Irishman. As an African-American working in Boston in the late 50s and early 60s, he associated the Irish with racist hostility. He's surprised that this quote-unquote Irishman seems friendly. I don't know why, but I think I know why. Because Irish are usually hostile to Negroes. And when I see a friendly Irish person, I react to it by thinking... I will be friendly. He focuses on another figure, too, one that seems more sinister. I think this one that is looking over his shoulder, the evil face, he looks like a Roman Nazi. Barney had enlisted in the army during World War II. The Nazi figure is another symbol of threat. How could you see these figures so clearly at that distance? I was looking at him with binoculars. Oh. Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say that his descriptions here, while under hypnosis, are probably reflective of his emotional reaction, not his visual perception. As we have heard, Barney kept his eyes tightly shut for most of his time on the craft, but he did open them briefly while he was being examined on a table. Uh, I saw this kind of grayish color. And this is interesting because most people, they know when you saw the little green men, and they were not green men, 
Mm -hmm. uh, they were a grayish, metallic kind of gray in color. And I might also say that I'm quite sure they were not wearing a mask, or rather any kind of apparatus over the head for breathing purposes, because I could see what would have been a mouth, a thin line, uh, without a lip muscle, that when parting, uh, when open, there was a membrane inside that fluttered, as it, uh, uh, really right at the end of the mouth itself. And this fluttered, and this seemed to be a way that they communicated with one another, with a very peculiar kind of mumbling, uh, humming sound. This description maintains the threatening feel of Barney's earlier descriptions of the Irishman and the Nazi, but this being is clearly not human. And unlike the beings Betty described in earlier episodes, Barney's doesn't seem likely to exchange in friendly banter. Betty and Barney worked with a New Hampshire artist named David Baker to create drawings of the aliens. Baker wrote the Hills a letter on October 2nd, 1967. It seems that he had shown them preliminary sketches and they had apparently been dissatisfied. In the letter, he tries to address their objections and I think it gives some insights into their perceptions of the aliens. He writes, Eyes slanted, opening, rounding sides of face indicating peripheral vision. Anatomy for such eyes would indicate bone structure to protect such enlarged eyeballs as indicated would extend cheekbones round curve of front facial plane, giving a look to eyes of not so much oriental as like a cat's eyes. Someone, maybe Betty, has written yes in the margin next to this observation. Baker, probably referring to Barney's description of a membrane in one of the alien's mouths, theorizes that the aliens might be wearing some kind of protective film that would distort their features, much like a bank robber wearing a stocking over his head, pushing his nose flat, pulling his mouth tight, and blurring facial details. This theory is met simply with a question mark. Baker's completed drawings are held at the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire. They portray what you'd expect, strange figures with large eyes, clad in the garb that Betty and Barney described, caps, scarves, jackets. Intriguingly, there's also a haziness to the images, as if visually representing the uncertain process of recall. When you consider that this is an attempt to portray beings that they considered to be real, the sketches are pretty eerie but there's something else in the archive. The Betty and Barney Hill papers are spread among some 14 boxes. Most of the boxes hold some combination of papers, photographs, and documents. Oversized box four, though, holds a very strange artifact, the sculpture of an alien bust. It's called Junior. As best as they've been able to figure out, it's made of some kind of resin molded over a window screen core. It's putty colored with a hint of green. Believe it or not, this bus was sculpted by Marjorie Fish, the same Marjorie Fish who constructed the models that pointed to Zeta Reticuli as the origin of the star map. She sculpted the bust based on David Baker's drawings as well as her own 
which she also made in consultation with Betty. Contrasted to Baker's drawings, Marjorie's sketches are very clear and simple, like something you'd see in a well-drawn comic book. To see Junior in person is jarring. It has a presence. Here's Betty showing Junior to John Horrigan during their 1999 interview. This is Junior. Now, this is a sort of a composite of the individual differences. They do not look alike. There's as much difference between, among them, as there is around any group of people. But this basically shows the characteristics. The larger eyes, nose, mouth, no protruding part, no hair. But this one, this is because he fell off the podium in St. Louis. Oh. He cracked his head. Okay. <laughs> so, but he's okay, though. But he has a pronounced brow ridge. Yep. Um, as you said, um, a pug nose, um, more or less a very small orifice for a mouth. And actually, instead of whites, actually have yellow eyes and eyes. That's well, the we, iris and a pupil. We, we put the yellow in okay. to, to emphasize them. I was going to say he yeah. needs visine or, or he looks like he has malaria, but okay. <laughs> but, uh, okay, now, Junior has been evaluated by I don't know how many physical anthropologists, mm-hmm. but what he looks like now if we continue along the path of evolution, this is what we're going to look like in 25,000 years. Junior looks like an early prototype of a gray. Its cranium is enlarged, but not as much as you'd expect. The eyes are big and somewhat at an angle, but again, not as exaggerated as what we're used to now. Also, the eyes have gray irises, black pupils, and as you just heard, the whites of the eyes are a kind of lemon yellow. The nose and mouth are barely there. The mouth is just four lines etched into the face. It makes me wonder if maybe this was more of a product of what she, quote-unquote, remembered most about the aliens, instead of what they looked like. The eyes had drawn her. The rest of the face was an afterthought. Betty would later claim that the grays that we think of now were not what she saw. Let's just go back to those type of entities. Um, they were your classic alien, gray-shaped, no. cat-like... A- no, no, or, no, 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 they weren't, okay. They, they were a form of human being. They were, they were a form of human being. Right. Did they have cat-like or Cheshire-like eyes? They or? had larger eyes than ours. Smaller nose, and smaller mouth, no protruding part of the ear, and no hair. So but not people. Nothing like these classic grays you see your Whitley Strievers. <laughs> I don't okay. know. I've never seen those. I don't know what they're talking sure, about. Sure, sure, okay. She said what she saw was closer in appearance to a tribe of indigenous people living near Antarctica that she learned about at a presentation she attended in Exeter, New Hampshire. Junior, in fact, looks to be some kind of midpoint between a human and the stereotypical gray alien. I understand her point, that what she saw isn't exactly what we think of now. But her description of the aliens, as shown by Junior, is an important step in creating the public understanding of what an alien looks like. The question that this begs is, if they didn't have an actual encounter, where did they get this idea of an alien's appearance? Well, maybe from TV. Skeptoid host Brian Dunning. So for a long time, the uh, people have been pointing to this episode of The Outer Limits called the Bolero Shield as probably what inspired 
uh, Barney Hill's description under hypnosis of what these alien characters look like because it came out at the right time that it's it's likely that he would have seen this on TV or, or possible anyway. And there wasn't really anything else in popular culture that might have informed his idea of what an alien would look like besides this. I mean, you could just do a Google search for the Bolero shield and you'll see what this alien looks like. And it's like, eh, yeah, it looks kind of alien-like, but it doesn't really look all that much like our concept of what we think of as a gray alien today. The Bolero shield episode of The Outer Limits ran 12 days before the Hill's first hypnosis session. The story is about a devious woman who tries to steal futuristic technology from a benign, highly advanced alien, only to have her plan backfire. Can you read my mind? Even through your shield? Oh, I cannot read your mind. I cannot even understand your language. The first thing you have to understand about the alien in this episode is that it looks like a person wearing a mask. It's pretty ridiculous by today's standard. And the alien doesn't really resemble Junior. But you could describe it as having oversized eyes, negligible nose, no ears, and a thin mouth. So the descriptions seem similar, even if they don't look too much alike. Again, Brian Dunning. But then recently, I, I heard from one of my listeners just in the last year or so that they found an older episode from The Twilight Zone from April 1962 called Hocus Pocus and Frisbee. And that had a, an alien character in it that looked way more like what we think of as a gray alien and way more like what Barney Hill described. Man, the last time I saw anything that looked like you, I'd been four days on the corn jug. And the timing for that was interesting. That came out two years before they did the hypnosis. So after they say the incident happened, uh, so it's possible that that Betty could have seen it, or that Barney could have seen it, or that they both watched it, who knows. So right now, that's, that's kind of my favorite explanation of where their description came from and why it happens to match what we think of as a typical gray alien today. Again, the alien here is basically a guy in a mask. But Brian is right that it is more like what Betty and Barney described. In particular, the nose is just two slots, and the mouth is essentially not there. Betty and Barney claimed not to have seen the episode of The Outer Limits, and I haven't found anything that says whether or not they saw the Twilight Zone episode. I don't think the Twilight Zone theory was around while Betty was still alive. Regardless, there are opportunities to see an ad or an image from a television show without watching the whole show itself. What does this all mean? Well. There was a process that began with the actual UFO sighting and continued through Betty's dreams, the hypnosis sessions, and various attempts to produce likenesses on paper and through sculpture. The description of the aliens changed over this period of time, which is not unexpected given what we know about memory. But most critically, the change in description from human-like creatures to more exotic aliens happened during hypnosis sessions, and that change reflected popular conceptions of aliens in television shows at the time. It shows how the Hill story 
might have changed in response to outside cultural factors. It could be that this process was towards an ever more accurate understanding of what they'd seen. But the simpler explanation is that the description of these figures was reflective of their expectation of what they would see on a UFO rather than a memory. While we have spent time looking at the story that the Hills recalled under hypnosis, none of this really reflects on the original continuously recalled memories of the trip on the night of September 19th. The night that they saw a light in the sky that eventually became a craft hovering above a field. Dr. Simon believed that the abduction was from Betty's dreams, but he felt that something had happened to the Hills that night. The question is what? Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rakicki. Barney Hill was portrayed by Jason Williams. Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut, John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.